What comes to your mind when you hear the word debt? Just to mention the word, it elicits a visceral response in some people. That's because some, if not many, are drowning in debt. When they were young, they saw debt as a means of getting ahead in life, be it getting a car, a house, a college degree, and that can be the case. But for many, it turns into a sand trap that they can't escape. And the more they try and climb out, it feels like the deeper a hole they are in. And debt can quickly get out of hand. If this is you, you're not alone. We're a nation of debtors. U.S. consumer debt is at a record $4 trillion. Credit card debt is also at a record $1 trillion. The average per capita debt is $12,000, but for millennials, it's almost $28,000. It's nothing new, though. Most historians believe concepts of debt and credit came long before currency in history. Ancient economies were based on debt or IOUs. For example, there's records of farmers borrowing heavily in the ancient Sumerian civilization. I mean, just think, if you're a farmer, you're just trying to feed your family and survive or feed your tribe, but you don't have enough seed. But your wealthy neighbor has plenty of seed, so you borrow some from him, you write an IOU, you promise to pay him back later. But what if something goes wrong? What if your crops fail? or there's a drought, or there's pestilence, just takes one thing to go wrong, and now you can't pay back your debt. And so you might lose your land. You might be forced into indentured servitude. And that happened frequently. In fact, there were times where a majority of a civilization's population was locked in a form of debt slavery. They assumed debt just to survive, and they put their own lives down as collateral, but when they couldn't repay, they were made slaves. So what do you do about that? Do you think your lender is just going to cancel your debts? Is it in human nature to forgive debt? You can test that. Just try, you know, next time Citibank calls with your late fee, just you try and say, you know what? Hey, just for the fun of it, can you just erase all my debt? Just, you know, hit delete and just erase all my credit card debt. Just as a favor, could you do that for me? And you let me know how that goes. Some politicians today talk about canceling debt. But it's different when you are the lender and someone owes you $100,000. Like, that's your money. You gave it to them. You're expecting it back. So would you cancel someone else's personal debt to you? Uh, I'm sorry, it's just not in human nature. But it is in God's nature. God is a God of grace, and it, it is in his nature to forgive debt, to cancel debt. His nature was reflected in his law for Israel. God understood there would be circumstances that would arise that might lead his people into debt. Some might be forced to sell their land or become indentured servants. But in Leviticus 25, God regulated these conditions. Overall, he forbade his people from charging outrageous interest to the poor. And if someone had to sell their land to survive, the buyer had to, in the future, allow a a kinsman to come and redeem or buy back the land. And if someone could not repay their debts, and if they could not buy back their land, every 50 years, all debts were to be canceled. Everywhere. That was the year of Jubilee. Debts would be canceled, land would be reverted back to its original owner, and slaves would be freed. This law was to be a reflection of God's own nature. That God graciously forgave Israel their debt and freed them from slavery in Egypt, and now they should do the same. But what's sad, though, is that in all of Scripture, there is no record of Israel ever once keeping the year of Jubilee. We have zero indication that they ever actually obeyed that command and canceled debts as the Lord told them. And why not? Well, it's just not in human nature. I mean, the law did not make Israel righteous. It didn't change their hearts. It just showed them God's righteous standard. But apart from receiving new hearts, man is selfish in his core. He's more concerned about self than others. So the last thing he's going to do is cancel someone, else, someone else's personal debt to him at, at great personal cost. It's not going to happen. But this merely reflects man's fallen heart of sin. But again, we can be thankful that God is not like us. And we should be thankful that we serve a God who is gracious and forgiving, and he cancels debt. 
And that's good news because all of our sin before him is like a spiritual debt. Each time we transgress his law, we incur debt. We owe him perfect righteousness. So we were created for, but we fall way short of that and we cannot make up the difference. Ours is in reality an infinite debt that we cannot hope to repay. And so all that awaits us, you might say, is debtor's jail, an eternal punishment for an eternal debt. And God would be perfectly just to just sentence everyone to this fate, but it's in his nature to forgive. And he's a God of grace. And in that sovereign grace, he set his love on a people to, to redeem them, to restore them, to reconcile them. And that would include a full pardon, a full remission of their sins, a complete cancellation of their spiritual debt. This forgiveness would come at a cost. And if you're the lender and you're going to cancel someone's debt, that means you're going to to eat the cost. You're going to just take care of the cost yourself. But God was willing to pay the cost. And he did so by sending his own son, Christ, to die on the cross in our place. And what he was doing on that cross was paying our sin debt for us in full. It sounds too good to be true. I mean, think of all the wrong you've done throughout your entire life. I mean, how could all that just be canceled? If someone called you up today and offered to pay off your mortgage in full, you just hang up because you know it's a scam like that. Okay, yeah, right. Click. But by God's own word and promises, his offer of complete forgiveness in Christ is true. This offers at the very core of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is part of what makes it good news that you can be completely forgiven in Christ. And this good news comes to be on full display in our passage this morning in Colossians 2. In fact, this might be the most poignant and profound statement of God's forgiveness in all scripture. And that's not an exaggeration. As you can open your Bibles now to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We're into the heart of this letter to the Colossians now. Last week, I gave you the really long version recap, and this week, I'll just stick to the the short version. But you have these young Christians, and they were being inundated with false teaching and contrary worldviews. They were not equipped to deal with it or to respond, though, and neither was their leader, Epaphras. So he goes to Rome to visit Paul to get some help. And that's understandable. The Colossians were facing a strange and eccentric mix of falsehood. So Paul writes this letter back to help them deal with what they're facing. Part of what he does is to just directly counter the claims the false teachers were making. But at the same time, he he mostly just teaches them about Christ to help these young Christians know more, know better their Savior, his person, his work. He wants them to know who Jesus is, what he's done on their behalf, and who they are now in him, united to him by faith. And these truths form the very foundation of Christian believing and living and and growing and stability. And so we just need more of Christ. You see in verse 8, Paul issues this warning. Starting this section, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And instead, you you just need to consider Christ. So he says right after in verse 9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you've been made complete. And here we are reminded that in Christ the fullness of deity dwells, And in that same Christ, we are made full or complete, which means that we have all we need in Christ. You don't need to look to the world for answers to life's biggest questions or or problems. We have in Christ God's answer to all we need. And so from here, Paul goes on to put on display Christ's complete sufficiency for all of our real needs in three ways. First, Jesus is our answer to sin's power. It's from verses 11 and 12. We looked at that last time. We found that being united to Christ 
by faith, we, we've died with him. We've been buried with him and we were raised with him. Our old self is dead and gone. We've been given a, a new self, a new nature. And we may still wrestle with sin in the flesh, but we're no longer bound and enslaved to sin's power. He's broken sin's power over us. It's a defeated foe and we're meant to live out this newness. Christ is our answer to sin's power. He's also our answer to sin's promoters. That's the third display from verse 15, which we're going to say for next week, where we find he is our answer to spiritual forces. But today, though, we come to focus on the second display of Christ's sufficiency, that he is our answer to sin's penalty. That Jesus is our answer to sin's penalty. And this is in verses 13 and 14. We're going slow, but this is worth seeing. So let's look at these now. Verse 13 and 14. Let's read these together. Colossians 2, 13, 14. He says, When you were dead in your transgressions, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And here Paul starts a new sentence, but he carries on a correlated thought that Jesus delivers us from the power of sin. But isn't the power of sin intertwined with the penalty of sin? Can you really be free from sin if you're still under its penalty? What good is it to be free from sin's power if you're still under sin's penalty? That's like being a death row inmate who you're guilty, you're convicted, you are awaiting execution. But there's a jailbreak, and you have a chance to to go free. You can gain your freedom, but not really. Because you're still a criminal, you're still guilty. You'll be on the run forever, and if you're ever caught, it's just straight back to death row for you. That's not really a meaningful freedom. If you are to really be free, that would require your name to be cleared, your record expunged. You would need a, a full pardon if you were to truly be free from those bonds. But we find here that is what Jesus does for us. His deliverance from sin is complete. That he not only breaks sin's power over us, but he clears our name. He clears our record. And if you were that death row inmate and that pardon came through, you were somehow proven innocent and you're, or you were just pardoned, It would literally be the best news ever. And so it should be for us. In Christ, we can be pardoned from an eternal death. I think at the very least, that's worth learning more about. And so this passage, it has two simple parts. Us apart from Christ and us together with Christ. And let's just go through this and and learn more about what the Lord has done for us. Let's begin with us apart from Christ. Christ. Us apart from Christ. Verse 13. He says again, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You can stop there. Verse 13. It takes us back to BC before Christ. And what were we like back then? Well, he says, for one, you were dead in your transgressions. This is a reference to all of our spiritual condition before Christ. We were spiritually dead. The word transgression is one of the many terms for sin in the Bible. It refers to a fault, an error, a lapse into wrongdoing. And this word pictures God's standard like a line in the sand. And don't cross the line. Don't don't go out of bounds. Stay in God's bounds. There's there's freedom in the bounds, just don't overstep. And God's law is like this. His statutes are are like boundaries. And they're designed for our good, for our benefit, for our protection, for our safety, and for our blessing. But to transgress them is to like go out of bounds. It's to cross God's lines. It's, It's not for our good, but it's something we do all the time. We transgress all the time. 
And the result of such sin is guilt and shame. These are built-in consequences. Like Adam and Eve, when they first sinned, they immediately felt this tidal wave of guilt and shame come over them. It's like someone had just put a huge weight on their back, crushing them, and they couldn't escape it. They tried to hide their sin. They tried to cover up their sin, thinking it might deal with all the guilt, but it didn't work. And that's because they found in sin that the greatest consequence, which is separation from God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. When you serve sin as your master, the only wage you can expect back is death. And death, of course, biblically just refers to separation. Adam and Eve would come to know physical death because of their sin and return to dust. But on that day, they, they also knew immediately a spiritual death, a spiritual separation from their creator God. The, the greater part of the curse, that they would be separated from their good God forever. And they died spiritually the day they transgressed God's command. And they entered this state of alienation from God. And that's what scripture refers to as our spiritual death. Ephesians 2.1 says you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And Colossians 1.21, we saw back in chapter 1. He says, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Of course, now our our transgressions are not merely our our biggest problem. Our transgressions reflect a, a deeper problem, a nature problem. And we don't primarily have a problem in deeds, although that's a problem, but we have a, a problem in nature. That we're not sinners because we sin. We sin now because we're, we're sinners. Our natures have been corrupted. It's like with children. When you tell them not to do something, something inside them compels them to do it. You know, on their own, I found most children don't really care to play with an electrical outlet. It's not like a fun toy. But the moment you have that stern talk with them to never touch the outlet, never put anything in the outlet, it's like a force within them takes over and wants nothing more now to transgress, to just do it. And that's their sin nature. They're enslaved to it. We all are. We're born with it. It's like Paul says back in Ephesians 2, 3. It says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And this is the sin nature we're born with, inherited from Adam. And it has passed on spiritual death to all of us. Just this alienation. This is Paul's big point. In Romans 5, he said in verse 12, talking about Adam, that just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And he says, through the one man's transgression, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Uh, Humanity was was spoiled or, or corrupt from Adam on. You know, in ancient warfare, one tactic to hinder the enemy was to spoil their water supply. And so just drop a carcass or two down a well And you've pretty much done it. You have spoiled that well. It doesn't matter how much water you draw out of that well from then on. It's it's all coming out corrupt, defiled, spoiled, contaminated. And we are like permanently defiled wells. The well of humanity was spoiled by sin, which reigns within us. And so we produce just nothing of value to the Lord. Even our good deeds, they're, they're defiled. And this is what it means to be dead in your transgressions. This is the ongoing spiritual state of all people. Now back to verse 13, the Colossians. And most of us were even further separated from God. You see how Paul adds that they were dead in their transgressions. He says also the uncircumcision of their flesh. This is a reference to them being cut off from God as Gentiles. You know, back in verse 11, Paul used circumcision metaphorically to refer to a a heart circumcision, which we need. That's akin to the new birth. But that's not the case here in verse 13. 
He uses a totally different word for uncircumcision. If this was a technical term used by the Jews to refer to the Gentiles, those who were physically uncircumcised in the flesh, and that marked them as being cut off from the people of God. And so what Paul is reminding the Colossians is that, you know, most of whom came from a pagan Gentile background, is that they were once doubly separated from God. They were separated in sin and they were separated in ethnicity. They were not among the chosen people, Israel. And once again, Paul says essentially the same thing in the parallel, Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now talk about being thoroughly lost. I mean, the Gentiles were super lost. You know, being once excluded from Israel, they had no access to God's word, his revelation, his covenant promises. They were without God and therefore without hope in the world. It's about as bleak a a diagnosis of of the problem as it gets. And that that was our state, likewise, before Christ. That we too were spiritually dead, cut off from God, separated from his people, without hope. But thankfully, though, that's not the end of the story. And Paul starts off here in verse 13 with this quick depiction of us before Christ, this reminder of the bad news. We had a problem, a sin problem that killed us, captured us, enslaved us, separated us from God, and would do so eternally. And so we find that without Christ, well, that's all we were, spiritually dead and cut off from God. But there is good news. And so let's consider, secondly, us together with Christ. Us apart from Christ, but now us together with Christ. And as verse 14 or 13 uh, continues, we, we start to get into some good news. That despite our state of sin, rebellion, and spiritual death, God in mercy did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so verse 14 goes on. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, verse 13, he says, he made you alive together with him. And God quickened our spirits. He raised us from a state of spiritual death to a state of spiritual life. The expanded version of this is found in, can you guess it? Ephesians. You see all the parallels. Verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. After referring to our spiritual death being dead in our trespasses and sins, he says in Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We see time and again that this impartation of new life, it came by God's grace and per God's initiative. And being spiritually dead, we couldn't respond to anything. I mean, that's just one of the problems of being dead. You can't do anything. You cannot respond to God. But God summoned us to new spiritual life in Christ, enabling us to respond to him. And with this gift of new life comes reconciliation with God. That before in our death, there was alienation and separation from God. But in Christ, with this new life comes restoration and reconciliation. It's like when the prodigal son returned, though he had despised his father and squandered his inheritance, when he humbled himself and came back, the father celebrated. Why? Well, he says in Luke 15, 24, because this son of mine was dead, 
but he's come to life again. He was lost, but has been found. And so it goes with us. We were dead, but now in Christ, we're alive. We were lost, but now we're found. Only we know that we don't have ourselves to thank for this change. We have God's grace to thank. For us to be truly reconciled to God, though, our sin must be dealt with. And the penalty of sin still stands between us and God. That God in his holiness cannot accept us back into his presence with the barrier of sin still intact. But thankfully, as we keep going, the good news continues because in in Christ, God deals with this too. He not only, verse 13 says, makes us alive together with him, but also concurrently, he forgives us all our transgressions. You have to understand that before Christ, we have two big problems. We have a nature problem, just being dead in sin, corrupt, defiled from the inside out. We're spiritually cut off from God. We also have a behavior problem because of that corrupt nature All we do is transgress. We just keep breaking his laws and keep piling up debt before God. And so we were sinners by nature. We were sinners by deed. Both present a problem for us. Both of these sin problems must be answered if we're going to be reconciled to God. Something has to be done about that nature, the spoiled well, and then something has to be done about all the the rotten water that's already come out. And thankfully though, God deals with both problems in Christ. You know, regarding our our nature problem, while we were dead, he makes us alive. We were unclean, he makes us clean. He he brings new spiritual life to us in Christ. And so we're given a new nature. He solves our nature problem in Christ. But what what about all the things we've already done? What about all the deeds of the flesh we produced when we were, you know, BC? And even now still, Like, what about the actual record of our sin? Well, here, the answer is still Christ. That in him, we can be totally forgiven for all the things we've we've done. Here in verse 13, the word forgiven is charizomai. It's derived from the Greek word for grace. And it's used to speak of God's gracious remission of a person's sins. When God forgives us, it comes purely as a grace gift. And there's no other reason. It's by grace and grace alone. He forgives us all of our transgressions. No one deserves that. We deserve just, well, judgment. That would be pure and perfect justice and righteousness. But by grace, he can forgive. But what exactly does this forgiveness mean? I mean, it kind of sounds like Paul is saying here in Christ like we can we can be forgiven of everything, 100% of every sin and deed we've ever done, thought, deed. Every transgression can just be like wiped out. That sounds too good to be true. I mean, he can't mean that. But that is exactly what he means. And to clarify, in case you don't know, in case there's a misunderstanding, he adds verse 14. And this is now just elaborating on what this means to say he's forgiven us all our transgressions. What does he mean? Well, verse 14 adds, having canceled out the certificate of debt, he says, certificate of debt is one word, chirographon. It literally means handwriting and it speaks of a handwritten note or record of debt. This certificate of debt is equivalent to an IOU. It's a record of debt you've given to someone else. You've written it with your own handwriting, summarizing your indebtedness to another. And so we can think of it like a a record book of sins. Specifically, Paul says it consists of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And this word for decrees gives us a hint as to what this certificate of debt is all about. Word decree was used to refer to the ordinances of God's law. And you should know, all people are under God's law. The Jews were under the law of Moses, 
But even the Gentiles were under the law of God written in their hearts, Paul says in Romans, and made known by their conscience. Everyone's under a form of God's law and everyone is shut up under God's law because of sin. Everyone has broken God's laws, Jew and Gentile. This is Paul's big point in Romans 1 through 3 that all are guilty. It's not righteous. The Jews, they had the law, didn't make them more righteous. They actually just further exposed their sin nature. And the Gentiles, they didn't have the law of Moses, but they still did what was wrong, knowing God's law imprinted on their heart. Paul himself was a Jew. He was not one of these uncircumcised heathens. But he knew that he needed God's forgiveness all the same, which is why in this verse he switches to us. He's forgiven us all of our transgressions. But these decrees refer to the laws of God, to which all are accountable in one form or another. And these decrees are hostile to us because we just keep breaking them. Because of our sin nature, we just break law after law. And if God just gives you more laws, that just means there's more rules for you to break. You're just going to add more pages to your record book of sin. So what we have though here in, the, in this certificate of debt, it's a record of our wrongdoing before God. This is an accounting of all the ways we have violated God's law and incurred the debt of sin. And we owe God perfect righteousness, but we cannot pay. And many Jews actually believe that God kept a written record of all of their deeds. And this, this book would be brought out in the day of judgment to testify against them. And it's interesting is that thought is not that far off from what it is described in the great white throne judgment. It's the final judgment in the book of Revelation. And I'll read Revelation 20 verse 12. He says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Is it so hard to picture God having a a virtual book of all your sins? Each page lists all the wrongdoing you've ever done on each day of your life. And each page is signed by you. Your name's there at the bottom. It's your handwriting. It's your print. It's your signature. You signed it. This certificate of debt records your indebtedness to God, but you can't pay. You cannot pay the righteousness that's owed. And so when judgment day comes, those outside of Christ will be cast away from God's presence forever. But for those in Christ, what Paul says here, that this certificate of debt, what happens to it? What does he say? When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt. For those in Christ, it it has been canceled out. To cancel out means to smear, to rub, to blot out. It was used to refer to the, the erasing of ancient records. They oftentimes use ink that did not stain the parchment. So it could actually be erased. Or you can think of erasing a chalkboard. That you know, back in the day, school children would do their schoolwork on a, a flat piece of slate. And they wanted to start over or do something new. They would literally wipe the slate clean. This is where the expression comes from. And so Paul means though that our record book of sins can be erased. That the whole thing can just can be wiped clean. That God did not record our sins, so to speak, in permanent marker. But can you just imagine that? That the full record of all the bad things you've done your whole life is just erased like chalk from a blackboard, except there's no trace of it. You know, sometimes you erase a chalkboard, but you can still kind of tell what was there. It's like a perfect, it's like an unused chalkboard. Nothing's there. Now, Paul could stop here. I mean, that's already enough good news on on the forgiveness Christ affords for us. But he keeps going a little bit further because he wants to further elaborate on our forgiveness in Christ. And so back to verse 14. It says, having canceled out the certificate of debt 
consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You need to know that in reality, God cannot just look the other way. He can't just choose to forgive you. That, that would be unjust. Exodus 34, 6 says, God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. There is a, a debt against his righteousness and someone has to pay. Justice must be served. God must right all wrongs and punish evil. Thankfully, though, God does accept substitutes. And so Jesus died on the cross in our place, making full payment or atonement for us. That is what actually enables God to forgive us. There's no magic wand here to just say, okay, let's just not worry about it. Pretend it never happened. Someone's got to pay. And Christ paid. So God can now wipe that slate clean. And so Paul says, God has taken our record book of sins out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, that's just a perfect picture of what happened to free us from sin's penalty. God didn't just forgive us, so to speak. He didn't just cancel out our certificate of debt, but he removed our debt entirely by nailing it to Christ's cross. Jesus paid our debt on the cross in full. Now, you might know that when a criminal was crucified, it was very common to take his charges and nail them above his head. This is why this person was being crucified. The Romans wanted people to know. So they'd be scared to do bad things. But as you also know, Pilate did that for Jesus. And in contempt, he put above Christ the charges, King of the Jews. That's all it said, King of the Jews. But this was in God's plan very appropriate. For he was their king. And that is why he was dying. This was their king who had come to die in their place. That he died the death they deserve, that you deserve, that they might avoid and escape the second death. And so it was like God was adding his own set of charges above Christ's head on the cross. You could even picture God the Father taking your record book of sins. The complete accounting of all you've ever done against him. All of your guilt and nailing that book to the cross above Christ. Those, those were the charges against you. You should be the one there hanging on the cross, paying for your sins. But now, you see, these charges belong to Christ. He's taken them all. He's countersigned them all. It's like your record book of sins belongs to him as if he had done those things. It's as if he had done everything you had done, and so he is dying, paying for what he did, so to speak, for what you did. This is how we can be forgiven, and this is why we say that Jesus is our answer to sin's penalty. It's a short verse, simple but powerful imagery, but we have another potent example of Christ's sufficiency, that Christ Jesus is our only hope and our only answer to sin's penalty. Peter said this of Jesus in Acts 10.43. He said, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. This is God's plan. Forgiveness in the Christ was always God's plan. His death in our place is the only way we can escape the just penalty due our sin. And so have you, have you received him? Have you believed in him for the forgiveness of your sins? You need to know he's the only answer. There's no other answer for your sin. You ever think back on your life? Do you ever, you know, look back through your record book of sins, so to speak, and just kind of reflect on your life. You recall all the things you've done. How many pages would be filled with lies? How many pages would be filled with lust? 
How many pages would be filled with outbursts of anger? I mean, we're probably talking thousands and thousands of pages. You add everything up, the thoughts, the deeds. And yet some of the pages stick out as if they've been tabbed. Some are thicker than others. And they record the times you you greatly hurt someone else or your sin against God was high-handed and brazen. And as you remember your past life, even still today, you might still feel guilty. And it's only worse because at the same time, we, we keep adding pages. We are still today adding pages to the certificate of our debt. It just grows. And so shame, guilt, and sorrow might attend your conscience nonstop. Now, look, in a sense, that guilt is appropriate. Woe unto the person who doesn't feel anything when they sin. But you need to know also, we're not meant to live in that guilt or to stay in that shame. That there, there is an answer. There's a release valve for all the, the pressure that builds when you sin against the Lord. But the problem is, all too many people, sometimes even Christians, that they look to the wrong release valve to try and deal with their sin or, or alleviate their guilt. And for most people, their response to doing wrong before God is penance. Something called penance. They've done wrong, so they think they've got to, well, do right. Make it up to God. They kind of operate under this idea that, well, it's up to them and their efforts to to pay God back, to, to do something, to make up for what they did. You know, penance is in the very fabric of Catholicism. That when you sin, you essentially have to make up for it through your good works. So if you want to feel better, if you want your guilt to go away, you better pray that rosary 20 times or however many, he says. But listen, even Christians can fall into this trap. You know, maybe you've fallen into a sin that you know it's wrong, but you feel you can't help it. Time and time again, you keep failing in the same area. And it's that, that pressure builds, that the feeling of guilt builds within you. You just, you know it's wrong, but you feel like you can't help. You keep falling. You're sorry, but you don't like feeling bad. And so in an effort to make things right, you resort to works, penance. Maybe you say to God, Lord, I'm so sorry for what I've done. And I blew it again. But listen, I'm going to read my Bible an extra hour today. I'm going to get to church early. I'm going to give extra in the offering. I'm even going to go to the prayer meeting. I'm going to make this right. Look, these are all good things, but they would be of zero value before the Lord if they come from such a heart. And turning to penance, which is the bedfellow of legalism, it simply has no power to alleviate your guilt or to deal with sin and its penalty. That that's the wrong answer. That's the wrong release valve. There's, there's no alleviation there. There's only one answer here. There's only one release for your guilt and your sin. And it is, can you guess it? Christ. Christ and his cross, his atonement, his good work for you. And there's simply nothing you can do ever to make up for your sin before God. The sooner you learn that lesson, the better. And you just stop trying. There's nothing you can do. But thankfully, we don't have to. Thankfully, again, we have a God who is gracious and who cancels debt. And he can accept us by grace. Not because we're worthy. We're not. Not because we deserve it. You never do. Not because we earned it. You can't. And just because he chooses to give it in his love. Not law, but grace. And therefore, the right response when you sin is not penance, but repentance, which is a a turning away from that sin. And at the same time, faith, which is a turning toward Christ. You must simply go to Christ and seek his forgiveness by his mercy. He is our more than sufficient answer. And if you're here this morning as a non-Christian, this is what you need to do. In humility, see your sin and your transgression before the Lord. You, you have a record book of sin. 
And you will be guilty. You will be convicted. You will be cast away from the Lord forever. But now see the Savior. See the one whom God sent for you to die in your place, to pay your penalty. And to receive, though, you must turn from your sin and rebellion. You must run toward Christ. You've got to cry out to him in faith, just pleading for his mercy. There's nothing you can do. But he does promise that those who cry out to him in faith, he will hear. And he will wipe your debt away completely. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so Acts 3.19, Peter said, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And now for those of you here who have turned to Christ, you too still need to remember Christ's forgiveness You need to run to his cross often. Like we still sin. We still add pages to our certificate of debt all the time. But the Lord wants you to know that you are forgiven. He's paid for them all. And he wants you to know that he's paid for them all. There's nothing left for you ever to pay. Do you know why that is? Do you know why the Lord in his word wants you to know that if you're in Christ, you are truly forgiven? totally forgiven. He doesn't want you to know so that you might think you have a license to sin. If you think his unending forgiveness means, oh, I guess you can just sin now free and clear. You don't understand his grace and that the heart that's been made new wants nothing more to to be rid of sin. But God wants you to know that you are forgiven in Christ because it's absolutely essential to the life he wants you to live And the mission he has for you. Now that he's drawn you to himself and made you his, he's got plans for you. He wants from you worship, praise, adoration, holiness, thanksgiving, a life lived unto his glory. He set you on a race now and he wants you to run for his glory. But the thing is when you fall into sin and you just wallow in guilt, it it sidelines you from that race. He wants you running after the Savior, living your new life for him. But you can't do that when you're entangled in sin and mired in guilt. But that's not who you are in Christ anymore. And the Lord wants you to know that, not so that you think your sin is okay. But so that you know, even though it's very much not okay, he's still your God. You are still his adopted child. You're still forgiven in Christ and nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And so turn away from your sin again and get back to running after Christ. This is essential encouragement and comfort and reassurance. Believers need to just get on to running the race set before them. In fact, the believer filled by the spirit, just the thought, just the recollection that all of our sin was nailed to the cross, that becomes like fuel for our worship, our praise, our holiness. That Christ's forgiveness fuels our transformed living. So as you think about your sins, just take the Lord at his word. You know, when Paul says he has forgiven us all our transgressions, he meant it. In God's eyes, your record book of sins It's not even yours anymore. I mean, if you were to flip through your certificate of debt, you'd see all you've ever done. The day, the time, the deed, it's all there recorded. But your signature and your handwriting at the bottom is gone. You can't find a single page signed by you. It's been erased. There's not even a little trace of your signature as if you could tell it used to be there. It's just completely erased. And every page, Christ has signed his name. And he puts, charge that to my account. He's paid for them all. He's taken them away. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And so let these rich truths fuel your heart of praise 
and worship and, and holiness this morning. And you know what? Keep going back to them. That There's no moving on from this. We're not meant to move on from the cross. But instead, as often as you sin, and even more than that, just fly back to the cross. That's where the Lord wants you to be. And there you receive afresh his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, so that you might follow him each and every day with confidence. I'll leave you with a verse from It is well with my soul. You know it. This is why we sing though. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Let's praise him together. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you this morning for this grace, for this mercy it's found only at the foot of the cross. And there when we, when we fly to that cross, we look up and we see the Savior, our Savior, our Lord, our, our maker there. In human form, dying on the cross. Why? Not for himself, not for his sins. He had no record book of sin. All that was accounted to him was perfect righteousness. Why would he die? It's for us, Lord, you sent him in our place and you you nailed our charges above his head that he might pay for them all, that our book might be erased entirely. This is how we can be forgiven. This is what you did for us. How can we ever say you don't love us? How can we ever call into question your love for us? You, you, You put it in writing in blood on the cross and he signed his name in the dotted line that we might go free. This is now who we are. We are those who are Forgiven, not worthy, but just forgiven, called by grace. And now you give us a mission to tell the world of this saving grace and of Christ's forgiveness. You call us to witness, you call us to worship, you call us to follow him with our lives. Uh, Yet we need this forgiveness daily to remember who we are, what he's done for us, who we are now in him. He frees us from sin's power and sin's penalty that we might have new and eternal life now. And live that out. So recharge us, Lord. Refuel our hearts with these truths. Release us from our guilt and sin. Not as if our sin is okay, but, but because it's paid for in full. And uh, draw us closer to him that we might live for him each and every day. And to his glory we pray. Amen.